We're doing uh, Lord's Day 21, and um, as a very good practice, we're going to continue with our custom of reading the Catechism together because it turns out that if you know what it says, it's easier to explain it. Question number 54. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community I am and always will be a living member. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. Thank you. Well, this morning we're going to look at what the Apostles' Creed, remember this is what the Catechism is doing, it's, it's going to the Apostles' Creed here, what the Apostles' Creed says about the Holy Catholic Church. Uh, before we discuss the Catechism's answer, uh, I want to point out the interesting fact, the important fact, that the Apostles' Creed talks about the Holy Catholic Church at all. Uh, I really suspect that if we gathered a group of 100 evangelicals in America today and said, we'd like you to write a creed for the entire church, and we only want it to be this big, just really the, the bare essentials that we want you to confess if you're going to join a church. And by the way, that's sort of how the Apostles' Creed came about. It was a confession that people would make before they were baptized and received as adult members into the church. I say with a high degree of confidence that if we asked 100 evangelicals to come up with a creed, that no more than two or three of them would have the church in it at all. That is, we live at a time where people tend to think of theology as something that's between me and God, and the church, well, you know, it's nice, but it's not actually an object that we confess our faith in. And in that, we are very much out of touch with the historic church. Historically, people have understood that being part of the biblical church is an essential aspect of being a Christian. The church is not a voluntary organization that we can take or leave as we feel like. Christ died for the church. Christ is building his church. And in the words of our confession of faith, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, I encourage you to keep reading the New Testament cover to cover, read the Old Testament too, 
But as you read the New Testament cover to cover, you will discover there is nothing in there that suggests that anybody can be a Lone Ranger Christian. All Christians, as they're grafted into Christ, are grafted into the local church. People sometimes try to say, well, what about the thief on the cross? Well, A, he didn't live very long, right? We should note that. B, he was admitted into the visible church, not by one of Christ's elders, but by Christ himself. But what you'll never find is, well, you know, there's those Christians that just wander around out there for three or four years, and they're not members of the church. As our confession puts it, and by the way, this is not unique to the Reformed world. This goes back at least as far as St. Cyprian, uh, although I think our confession puts it slightly better. Cyprian said, outside the church, there's no salvation. And we've added the important qualifier, ordinarily. We like that as Presbyterians. Because, you know, you could be out on a ship in the military or something and come to Christ and not have any opportunity to join a visible church. So ordinarily, there's no salvation outside the church, but there could be. God is free. God is sovereign. But if you don't join a local church, you're kind of by definition not a Christian. Right? We tend to use that term Christian and saved interchangeably. But to be a Christian biblically is actually to be part of a local body. You've joined it. Right? People that are not Christians can look at you and say, those people over there. That's how the, the word Christian is first used in the book of Acts. Um, think about it the way you talk about Muslims. When you talk about Muslims in the Middle East, you're not talking about how they feel in their hearts about Allah. You're saying, those people over there who go to the mosque together, they're Muslims. That's actually how the term Christian is used in the book of Acts. Non-Christians go, those people who gather over there, they celebrate the Lord's Supper together, they, 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 they worship together. They praise Jesus as unto a God. They're Christians, right? Now, I know that I ruffle people's feathers when I say that uh, what do I call people who are um, Christians who don't belong to a church, and I say I call them non-Christians. Um, my good friend Tom Burka, that particularly bothered him. He'd always go, I know he's a Christian. And I go, well, how do you know he's a Christian? Right? For one thing, he's not doing what Jesus tells him to do. Right? Why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Because Jesus does, in fact, clearly, I mean, people might need to explain to them, but when you read the New Testament, it's very clear the Bible says, you know, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together, for example. And in fact, we are members of one another. But since I know this ruffles people's feathers, I want to give you a chance to ask me questions or push back on this claim that actually the church is central to God's plan in history and therefore central to individual Christian life. Yes, Allison. Oh, just an affirmation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's precisely right. I, I, I remember talking to someone a couple years back. They did not come to our church. Um, maybe they went to a church with a nicer pastor. I don't know. But, but I was talking about this, and they were like, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I was like, well, don't you need to, at least in principle, want to do what Jesus says? And he said, yes. And I said, well, one of the things Jesus says is submit to your elders. Could you point to the elders you're submitting to? Right? By the way, this, that's an isolated example, but it's not, this is not like there's one verse here or there. 
the whole warp and woof of the New Testament, the, the epistles, Acts and the epistles, but as you point out, and John as well, it presupposes that you are going to be part of the church. Yes, Bob. So in Ephesians chapter 1, 20, Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but so Bob Bob's making the point that in Ephesians the church is referred to, but not just Ephesians, but the church is referred to as the body of Christ. But now we have an issue because the Bible does speak both of the invisible church and the visible church. Now here's my really tricky question for you. When the Apostles' Creed speaks of the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, is it talking about the invisible church? or the visible church? It's one. So it must be universal. Yeah, but is it talking about the, the invisible church, or is it talking about the visible church? That's kind of important when we're making this confession. We come here once every four weeks, and we confess, well, actually twice, because we confess this with the, the uh, Nicene Creed too, which adds the word one. The visible or the invisible church? Speaking <laughs> apostolic, uh, the apostolic church is full based on the apostles, so therefore, is the visible. So Ron says visible. Ben? I think they mean visible. They mean visible. Now, we want to be careful while there's a distinction we're making here. We're not going to make a radical break between these two things. Because everybody in the invisible church ought to be in the visible church. But in the early church, when they said one holy Catholic and apostolic church, they actually had in mind this congregation here which is part of the universal church, as opposed to those schismatics down the street who've gone off and said, well, you know, Jesus isn't really God, and we get direct revelations from the Holy Spirit, so we all prophesy and say weird things. That happened, by the way. Um, and so on. And, and they would say, to be part of the Catholic Church, it's not just an abstraction. right? There's actually, you could look at it. And so when you say, are you part of the Holy Catholic Church, you can go, well, yeah, I'm a member of Merrimack Valley Presbyterian Church, which is part of the universal church. That, that's what they meant. Now, I want to say in the catechism, yeah, we'll come back to you in a second, Heather. In the catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, it actually shifts a bit to saying, uh, talking in terms of the uh, invisible church. And that's okay, because these things belong together. But please do keep in mind that the early church, what they meant was, you could see this church. Heather. I just had a question that was not a I guess. In this age of technology, there are online churches. And um, I've met friends who belong to online churches. Yeah, so uh, I, I do run the risk because I'm just old-fashioned because, you know, I am 61. But I want to say there are, in fact, no online churches. There are online organizations calling themselves a church. Now, I know this gets tricky because we actually do live part of our lives in that digital sort of world, and we communicate with actual people. We have relationships. I grant all those things. But I don't think there's any possible way that you can do what God has called the church to do entirely remotely. Right? Because all those questions about how do you actually get to know people, 
how do you elect elders? Well, they're really not electing elders that way. This is, this is an online um, entrepreneurial thing. I want to put it in a nice, a nice light. Not necessarily people trying to get wealthy or anything, but just they're going, let's do this. We'll reach people. Um, you, you're called in the church to share your life. It's one thing we're going to see this morning, to share your life with other people. And we ought to acknowledge and help teach young people this because they live more and more of their lives online, is that there are limits to how much we can do that remotely, and we actually need people that we can see face-to-face and break bread with and share our lives with them. Yeah. But I don't know. You can come back at me at that. I understand this is a, this is a tricky issue, but I'm going to say that um, I probably wouldn't focus that much if I was talking to someone who's doing this on, hey, that's not a real church. Instead, I'd want to talk about things they actually need that come from a real church that God's called us to do. And I would also encourage them, depends on their age groups and stuff, but a lot of people that are attracted to this are attracted to it for the same reason that there are people that just stay home and watch TV. doesn't place demands on me, right? I, I don't want anybody to point out that I have things in my life that need to change and so on. And I'd say, well, but I need that. I don't know, how, how do you deal with it, Heather? Well, you know, I guess my system of it are things like shut-ins. Sure. And stuff like that, but it seems like it's a wonderful venue for somebody who, you know, for whatever reason, is shut-in. Because otherwise, how are they able to participate in any kind of worship yeah. with fellow believers? Yeah, so ideally what's going on is they're a member of a local church that they can't get to, and the members of that local church are going to see them. And yes, by all means, take advantage of being able to listen to things online and so on. But I want to say, even in the case of like listening to a sermon, you know, we've done this out throughout COVID or I'm homesick or whatever. There are some wonderful preachers. I often recommend David Strain to you. He's one of my very favorite preachers. He's fantastic. But do you know when you listen to a sermon on TV, it's actually a very different experience than being part of a congregation that's worshiping together. Because there's actually something about the medium that changes the way that we appropriate things. And when I'm watching the TV, I am in charge. That's very different than God speaking to you in person from somebody and you're not in charge. Right? And, and, and that really does shift the way that you experience God's word. So, okay, we've got, I, I want to come, oh, go ahead, Michelle, you, if you. Uh, just a quick tag on the what yeah. you were saying, just thinking of the So I, I, it, 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 at the risk of scaring you, I would go with Calvin and call, well, listen with Calvin. I would call marriage a sacramental. He makes a distinction between the main sacraments. There's actually some interesting things about that because marriage is actually a covenant relationship that reflects Christ's connection with the church and all marriages are meant to point to that. But that's not where you're going to. Um, just give me a little grounds to you know, bring me up at Presbytery. Um, Why are you pointing this way? I was... I was I was pointing to your wife, actually, not you, not you. You're innocent. Uh, the presbytery is a little busy now for this, to be honest. Um, wow. 
I, I will also say, though, see, part of what leads to the online church situation is already a defective view of the church that is rampant in American evangelicalism, which is how do you determine whether or not you take the Lord's Supper? It's up to you. It's your choice. There's no discipline. There's no elders admitting people. Right? There, there's no, you don't have to talk to someone who hears a good profession of faith and looks at your life and says, yes, you ought to be participating in the Lord's Supper, or no, you can't. And that self-help sort of religion in the sense of you could design it for you, the whole thing is about how you feel about it, is actually anathema to biblical religion. But that's enough on, on, on online churches. Let's, let's see if we can do a little bit about uh, the One Holy Catholic Apostolic Church as we have it here. So look at question 54 with me. First, the, the Catechism points out that the church is the creation of Jesus Christ. That actually does dovetail in some of our discussions here. The church is not a man-made idea. We Christians didn't get together and say, hey, what, we, what do we want to do when we get together? Right? Or do we want to get together? It's Christ's idea. Christ creates the church. Second, the church exists from the beginning of the world. Right? So Adam and Eve are in the church. Uh, I have discovered that sometimes Christians think, and we use this language occasionally, that Pentecost is the birthday for the church. Actually, it's not. It is a very important shift in the history of the church. It, it, it changes things. You could say it's the birthday of the Holy Catholic Church because the church in Israel's history was confined primarily to one nation. And so Catholic is, well, now it's going to the whole world, people of every tribe and tongue, right? So in that say that's true. But Abraham is a member of the same church that you are, right? So that now we're moving back into the fact that the church is not simply the visible church in our own day, but consists of all the believers throughout history who are united together in Christ. Third, we ought to make sure that we're clear on the major descriptions of the church. The Apostles' Creed has three, Holy, Catholic, and Apostolic, but Nicene Creed has four, one Holy, Catholic, and Apostolic. Um, what does it mean that the church is one? Jew and Gentile. There's not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There's one together. What else does it mean? Why is it important that we, we confess that there's one church? Sarah. And that the church is in truth united by the Holy Spirit. Church is in fact united by the Holy Spirit. Why else? Bob. We are we are called in union with Christ, right? So there's only one Savior. There's not multiple saviors. There's one Savior. And therefore, we're all united in Christ, filled with one Holy Spirit. Ben? Uh, disconnected with that is the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is not a polygamist, right? Jesus has one bride. It also has profound ramifications for us because that means every other believer that I ever meet is my brother or my sister. I can't segment them off and go, well, they're Pentecostal, right? Or they're Lutheran, or, you know, they're Southern Baptist. Oh, Southern Baptist, right? No, no. We, we, we all belong to each other. We are members of one another in Christ. What does it mean that the church is um, holy? But, Ray? Uh, separated. Separated to God. Separated to God. That second part is very important. Um, people have often talked about holiness in terms of being separated from the world. In one sense, that's true. You've been pulled out, called out, 
set apart. But holiness actually ultimately has to do with you've been called out and devoted, kind of like that word, devoted to God by God. That is, we start with holiness as positional before it's manifested in your life. So you think about this in terms of the temple and the tabernacle. Um, if you had a, a uh, silver vessel, you could devote it to the Lord's service in the, in the tabernacle, and they'd have to cleanse it and purify it and so on. And actually, the, the vessel itself wouldn't change at all. It'd be exactly the same material. But it would go from being for common use to being devoted for the Lord's special use, and that would make it holy. And that's what God does with you. When he, when he calls you, he sets you apart for his special use. It's his own treasured possession, and you are positionally holy. And then, of course, you're called to actually start manifesting that in your life. Bob? Uh, can you just answer me? So, included in holy would be the, the indication of Christ's righteousness. You, um, well, that's an interesting question. I'm going to say probably not, although obviously they go together. Biblically, the holiness has to do with you being set apart for belonging to God, and then it gets manifested in your life. Now, praise be to God, the moment you're set apart, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so you're accepted. The fact that you're not yet actually manifesting Christ perfectly in your life does not bring you into judgment because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. But I'm not aware, I mean, I can't run through all the Bible verses in my mind that quickly, but I'm not aware of any scripture passage that specifically links the imputation of Christ's righteousness with our holiness, although, of course, they happen at exactly the same time. Maybe there is. So Bob's going to write us all this afternoon and tell us if he, that he, fa he, he, found, he found a verse, or several of them, right? Because this is a topic that gets talked about a lot. Um, third, the church is apostolic. What does it mean that the church is apostolic? I skipped Catholic because I, I went from the Apostles' Creed to the Nicene Creed. What does it mean that it's Catholic? We already touched on this. So the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets, Ephesians 2. So it's built on the foundation. Jesus himself being born. Okay, so we'll stick with apostolic here. Um, Allison gives a good reformed answer if it says it's built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Is there another answer that a large communion, let's say Roman Catholics, has given to this question? Ray. The, the Catholic Church would say, and the, the tradition of the church. Yeah, that's not actually on this point. Sarah. They would say that like, Christ gives spiritual peace to the church here that are passed down to the bishops or passed down within the true church. And so any skin that outside Yeah, so Sarah is completely correct on that. The Roman Catholic view, which was a very common view in the Middle Ages, and by the way, at the beginning is a pretty rational way to think of things practically. Right? You don't start with like a complex systematic theology. You, you got a friend who's uh, visiting you. You're in Florence, and they visit you, and they're going to go back to uh, where they live in France. And they say you witness to them, and they become a Christian, and you're going, well, you got to join a church. And they go, well, what church do I join? How do I know that the church I'm joining is an apostolic church? And the answer is, well, you find out where the bishop is. 
the bishop that's been ordained by bishops, it's been ordained by bishops, it's been ordained by bishops. We've got a line of people here. This is not like a bunch of guys that just went off in a room and invented something by themselves. And if you're in communion with the church, but is in communion with this bishop that's, well, in theory, has been ordained all the way going back to the apostles, you're in an apostolic church. It's actually kind of a mechanical thing. Now, actually, the Catholic Church has a better explanation for this than our Orthodox brethren do, the, the Eastern Orthodox do. Because the Eastern also take this ordination of hands and hands and hands and so on. But actually, in Catholic theology as it's evolved, the, the key thing is not that you can trace this bishop in the 21st century all the way back to the apostles directly. It's the bishop who's in communion with the pope who they trace all the way back. Right, so how, how do you know you're in an apostolic church? Well, your church has a priest who reports to a bishop who reports to the pope. It works, right? If, you, if, if someone did that, you'd have, a, you'd have one church that would be based on the apostles. But at the time of the Reformation, people went, yeah, that doesn't work. Go ahead. Well, I was thinking when there were three popes at once. That is problematic that there were three popes at once. By the way, I want you to know what's not problematic for this theory is popes, popes that are not Christians or popes that are really, really grossly immoral. I mean, all Catholics would go, that's a shame the pope was immoral, but it doesn't mess up the system. But it is problematic to have three popes at once, which was settled by a council, which would seem to say that the council would be over the bishop. And at that council, Council of Constance, um, the council declared in a decree called frequens, you can figure out what that means, frequently, that popes must call ecumenical councils of the church frequently and at least every 10 years. And then popes have not been doing that, so they are crassly violating an ecumenical council of the church. And if they want to say the council is not ecumenical, you can't settle who the real pope is, because that council settled which pope is. Right? But we're going to set all that aside for a moment. Sorry, sometimes it just comes out. Um, I've, had, I've had a fair number of debates with Catholic theologians, so... Um, I will say this, I did talk to a, uh, a priest down at Georgetown University who had the intellectual honesty. I asked him about resources on the Council of Constance, because he, he's written on uh, Trent, and he also wrote a very good volume on um, Second Vatican Council. And I asked him about this, he goes, look, there's only one book, it's written by a German, like, I don't know, it was 40 or 50 years ago. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, if you're a Catholic theologian who wants to get a job in a Catholic university and you write an academically credible book, or dissertation on Constance, well, then you can't get a job, right? Because you're going to be saying things that people don't want to hear. And I thought that was an interesting thing. And I asked him why he wasn't a Protestant, but he's a Jesuit, and Jesuits are often very flexible about um, their own personal choices and how they fit in the life of the church. Okay. Um, where were we? Catholic. 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 Apostolic. Apostolic. Um, the reformers, and this is where you'll often hear when people say, what are the marks of the church? Many Protestants forget to start with one holy Catholic and apostolic, and they move directly to the word of God is rightly taught and preached, the sacraments are rightly administered, and there's church discipline. And Lutherans tend to do two and a half. They kind of like, well, church discipline, but it really is part of the word of God being preached. But essentially, we agree on that. What you need to remember is those three marks that were developed in the Middle Ages are a commentary on apostolic. They're saying, this is what it means to be apostolic. Not that you can trace 20 people that laid hands on each other, but is this church 
committed to the apostolic teaching, that's the authority of God, we're going to follow Jesus because Jesus commissioned these as his plenipotentiaries, those who have authority to speak in his name, and therefore, at least to some degree, we can't just say we believe everything they say. We have to show that with, well, you know, we do baptisms, and we do celebrate the Lord's Supper, and, you know, we do have a degree of church discipline. Now, that's really where that divide comes. So Protestants go that route, Lutherans, Catholics, most evangelicals to the degree they think about it, and um, the, the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics are doing the more mechanical thing, and the Anglicans kind of have a middle, was it via media? Right? Some of them are doing the, the Protestant approach, but many of them also really do want to hold on to the bishops has this line of succession of people laying their hands on them. And that can cause ecumenical problems, both within the broader uh, Anglican communion, but certainly between Anglicans and, Pro and Presbyterians, who actually we should be able to move a lot in the same direction, because the 39 Articles is really a reformed document. Bob. Oh yeah, I, I, I'm not going to do this this morning, but there's actually a fairly large number of passages that I think clearly support the Protestant interpretation, which is what we're really talking about is, I need to follow Jesus. How do I know what following Jesus looks like? I listen to what Jesus says. How do I hear Jesus' voice? Well, I get it directly from him in the Gospels, but I get it through all his ambassadors, the apostles. Right? And so this is not an abstract idea. Believing what the apostles write and seeking to put it into practice determines whether or not you love and are trying to follow Jesus or not. And we all do it imperfectly, which leads to a very important point about the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that Calvin made a big deal about, and you ought to too. Churches are more or less pure. There are no perfect churches. That is not what OPC stands for. It does not stand for the only perfect church. There are no perfect churches, but it also means when you look at other churches, a church does not have to be 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent pure in order to be a true church. We ought to be very reluctant to declare that those people meeting down the street are not Christians, but it's not really part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Um, this is one of the reasons why in the broader Reformed tradition, we tend to accept baptism from our, almost everybody. And certainly Roman Catholics, because they have a Trinitarian theology. It's interesting that people often bring up the Roman Catholic baptism as the problem. That's actually the easy one. They have clear doctrine. It's a lot harder to deal with some nebulous church with no doctrinal statement where you don't know what they believe and perhaps, you know, they don't care whether or not you believe Jesus is risen from the dead or anything, right? But you don't, you, you want to keep that pretty broad in your thinking. Now that doesn't mean you join such a church, but you don't want to disfellowship them and say they're not part of the true church. Sarah. Right, so you know, a lot of our fellow evangelical churches don't really have any form of discipline at all. They don't church membership, yeah. things. It's really hard.
Yeah, actually, it's, I, I think in many ways it's easier for us to deal with this with the Roman Catholic Church, not that we're making great strides here. I do think when we talk about church unity, which Christ wants us to have, we need to put it into two buckets. Um, and, I, and I don't think that watering down what Christ is calling us actually helps with either bucket, but a, a, a large degree of grace does. One bucket is we don't rush to write off people who aren't doing things, although it can get really messy to figure it out. I, I'm not going to make it simple. What I'm going to say there is for you is you don't have to do it, and I actually as an individual don't have to do it. If we're going to declare that some churches are not true churches, it should only be done first at a session that has to decide can we transfer somebody to this body. And by the way, we don't have to decide it's not a true church to do that. We could say it's not in their spiritual interest to go there. And the session could say, we're not going to give you a letter of transfer. You ought not to go to that group. Second, it could be done at a larger level where presbyteries and general assemblies and stuff are working on precisely those issues. So that's part of it. But there's a second part which says we ought to be working on truth with each other for the sake of unity. And therefore, we ought to be in dialogue. And I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but the OPC has a very large work of what we call fraternal relations. And we have three levels of relationship. Um, the closest is we call them um, just fraternal relations, which are churches that are of like faith and practice. And we have dozens of churches throughout the world that we share this with. So I'm sure you all know about the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, we have literally the same doctrinal standards. If you open up a PCA's book for their doctrinal standards, on the inside it says copywritten by the OPC, because we were here first. But of course, we, we, we got it from other people. Um, and so uh, the, our relations are so close that pastors can actually just go back and forth. Or we work with the Bible Presbyterian Church, which had, had moved away from us for a while. They'd moved in a dispensational direction, and then has come back to being more fully reformed. We have full relations with them. And they say, you know what, we're a little tiny denomination. And there's a flood in Louisiana. It's kind of silly for us to do anything. But we're going to take a collection, and we're going to give it to the OPC, so that the OPC, in our disaster relief, on their behalf, is going to do this work. Right? So we're doing that around the world. Right? We're in relationships with churches in various countries. The Presbyterian Church of Brazil is probably one of the largest, has know, about 2 million members. We're in full communion with them. So that's important. But I think what we have to do as we're working on that is keep saying, Let's be honest about the areas where we see things differently. And our goal is not that you agree with me. Our goal is that both of us will agree with Jesus. Right? So we have to work on unity and truth together, I think. Right. We do that between the PCA and the OPC. Uh, that actually has some real challenges to it. I, I, I think you want to be realistic about the fact that pursuing unity, the reason why we don't do it as much as we should is it can be hard. Because, um, you know, we don't want to say this because we know it's the wrong answer. But mostly we want to get our own way. Right? We want unity where people are going to agree with us. We actually have a problem right now in our mission field in um, Quebec. There are three ERQ churches. Um, these are reformed churches in Quebec. And they get funding from other people because they're these small limited churches. And one of the churches is funded by the OPC, one is funded by the PCA, one is funded by the URC. And wouldn't you know it, the church that's funded by the URC looks like a URC church, the church that's funded by the PCA looks like a PCA church, and the church that's funded like the OPC, by the OPC looks like an OPC church, and they have difficulty getting along with each other. Uh, th this stuff is messy in real life, right? Boy, we are not going to get through this today.
That's okay. That's okay. Um, let, me, let me move just a little bit forward here. We did get started a little bit late, but we'll, we'll just do a few minutes and then we'll wrap up. Um, I do want to say some things about the implications of the church being holy Catholic and apostolic. Uh, the great New Testament scholar C.E.B. Cranfield, who's written really one of the most impressive two-volume commentaries on Romans, um, he points out that the church does not belong to itself. It is not its own property. That's something we really have to get home in our own day, um, where people all want to reinvent the church into whatever new... If we just get new methods and we, we sit on couches instead of pews and stuff and have better coffee, we're going to win our neighborhood to Jesus. The church does not belong to itself. It is not its own property. Nothing wrong with good coffee. Um, Though it is ours in the sense that God means it to be our true home, it is not ours to dispose of and to arrange according to our wishes. Its only owner is God, and we are warned against behaving as though matters stood otherwise. Um, holiness also points to a vital aspect of the church's mission. Right? We're to point people to God. We're to live for God. Right? Live as separated people. We're, we're, we're to be in the world, but not of it. And we're to point people to a world that is beyond what they can see. Uh, Cranfield also makes uh, another helpful point. that the church is called to strive strenuously to reflect in all its human weakness and unworthiness something of the character of God to whom it belongs. To seek earnestly to become more and more its concrete existence, in its concrete existence, what it already is by God's gracious decision of justification. Regretfully, he writes, the temptation is always present for the church to deny its holiness and allow itself to be conformed to the passing age. So I'm just going to end on that point and say this is a very practical application for us in the OPC and in the NAPARC world generally. We have a problem right now. By no means with every church. But we have a problem in the Reformed world where people have gotten appropriately excited about the things that God does for us forensically, reckoning to us the perfect righteousness of Christ, justifying us by grace alone. And there's a stream in the reform, conservative reform world who's run with that and therefore has said, actually, how you live isn't very important, right? Because it doesn't matter how bad a sinner you are, you're perfectly justified before God by grace. And um, some of those people have suggested that actually you're probably not going to make very much progress in this life. And really, spiritual maturity is coming to grips with the fact that you're going to be a horrible sinner to the day you die. And I want to say that is neither what we find in the Reformed Confessions, but more importantly, it is not what we find in the Bible. Right? Repentance, where we turn to Christ, God in Christ, and we find a faithful and sufficient Savior, is followed up by... Now, endeavoring by the grace of God and the power of God in your life to live in a new way, right? So justification is not an excuse for avoiding sanctification, and sanctification is not an optional extra. That's true for us individually. That's really where I'm hitting this problem in our life. But it's also true for us as a church. Yeah. So I, I do want you to be aware. You will run into reformed people who talk that way. Um, I don't know if he's still alive. I'm going to speak ill of the dead here. Um, how many of you know who Steve Brown is? Yeah, so Steve Brown had been on the radio for a while. He was a professor of homiletics at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And he was very much on this train of 
Uh, he would celebrate people just coming to grips with, yeah, I'm not going to make any more progress in the Christian life. Beloved, as long as you can fog up a mirror, you're supposed to be pressing on. I mean, there's, there's so many examples of that in God's word where the Apostle Paul, for example, talks about us running the race, fighting the fight. Right? You know, an athlete works really, really hard pursuing a, a, a crown that's just going to blow away. And so the grace of God which liberates us from the burdens of our sin so that we're not crushed under them is also meant to liberate us to pursue Christ with passion. Right? Pursue holiness without which no one will see God. I'm sorry. He's alive. Steve isn't alive? Steve Brown is still alive. Yeah, I didn't know because he was older. Steve, Steve was a guy... Who, who actually was very much part of this, and it was a problem really at RTS in Orlando, so it was, a, it was good actually that he, he left there. I don't know if he left as a retiring, I think he did. Uh, but there are other people that did this. Another name you might have heard of is uh, Tuian Chavidian, was at uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church after Jim Kennedy died. And um, regretfully, that's a very, very sad uh, uh, thing that happened because he was teaching this, but then it turned out he also had had uh, a couple of affairs, and he, he got fired, and he got hired by another church, and it came out he had another affair, and so on. It was a very, very sad situation. What really bothers me, though, is he's back in ministry. And I'm not saying that people can never get restored, but, you know, there should be a bit of a time lag here. And when he started a new church, and they're interviewing people, they're like, well, he gets us, right? He's, he's a sinner like we are. And I'm like, yeah, we're all sinners, right? Does any, do any of you have difficulty relating to sin? If so, please see me, you know, after the service. Or, or talk to your wife or husband. They can, they can explain to you, 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 you're not as pure as you think, right? But it's sort of that, and we don't want a pastor who's telling us we want to be holy, and we know he won't, right? That's really a terrible, tragic thing. Bob. So Mark Jones, a PCA pastor, Bob, Bob is plugging um, Mark Jones's book, Antinomianism and Reformed Theology. I haven't read it, but Bob's a very, very fine uh, thinker on this. Uh, I'm just going to say, um, if you read the larger catechism's treatment of the law, the Ten Commandments, which in my judgment is the best treatment of the Ten Commandments that's ever been produced, uh, it does take some work, you will realize that the confessionally Reformed Christians are not antinomian, and that there is a clear expe expectation that the grace of God which has delivered you from the power of sin is going to be at work in your life so that you're conformed more and more to the word of God and therefore to Jesus Christ. Uh, but then, and I think we should end on that and we can talk afterwards. Um, Jason, would you pray?